You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. That's what we're going to talk about today, and that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal, and this isn't particularly directed towards fathers, the message that I have today, but in a sense, it is, because as fathers and husbands, we are the head of our households, and we are to set the example and the pace. And likewise, in society, we set the example and the pace as men. And so this is for all, but as it is Father's Day, fathers, pay careful attention. We're going to be picking up from last week after the conclusion of Genesis 38 and Genesis 39. So you go ahead and turn there. And I'll read and then we'll pray and dive in. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said to him, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you. We do bless your name, as the song says. And we come to you so that we can lay hold of the life, the eternal life that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, that you've bought for us with your blood, that is our privilege to walk in the fullness of. And that's what we're after this morning, is to be those who are in the Spirit and not in the flesh. If so be that the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And if so be that the Spirit of Christ dwells not in any person in here, then would you convict their hearts and bring them to repentance today. And for those of us who know you, strengthen us according to your word. Fill our hearts with courage. Convict us and cut us so that you can bind us and heal us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Ben said last week, it seems like a bit strange that there was this story of, of Judah inserted uh, in the middle of the biography that we see happening here in Genesis. And he explained that thoroughly. But I want to continue on that a little bit because it's intentional here that there's a juxtaposition of Judah and Joseph in these two chapters. There's a side-by-side -side comparison of the two of them when you read them one after another. You see, when you look at them, that it's the same specific sin that's in consideration, sexual immorality. It was the same vector of temptation. They were sought out by a woman, although it was different in the circumstances, but true nonetheless. Proverbs says that a married woman hunts down a precious life. We see that Joseph is more righteous than Judah in the way that he dealt with the temptation. Joseph succeeded where Judah failed. And see how little a temptation caused Judah to sin compared to how great a temptation that Joseph resisted. Judah sought out immorality. Joseph sought righteousness. And so we had these two side by side, and they are for us types. They're archetypes. Jo Judah is a type of us as sinners and failures. And Joseph is a type of Christ as Savior and victor. Judah was a type of us as sinners and failures. He took a Canaanite woman for his wife, which Ben talked about last week. This was against the will of God. It was something that they were forbidden to do and that there were careful pains taken by his fathers in other places in Genesis so that they wouldn't marry Canaanite women. So he did this. He raised up wicked sons after him. Two of them the Lord killed. And he feared the Lord in a wrong way he feared to be obedient to the Lord and to be honorable because of what the Lord might do to his other son. He deceived Tamar. He sought out sexual immorality. She sought him out in a sense, but she knew that she wouldn't have to do much because he was going to be seeking out to commit that act. And then after he did it, he sought to cover it up. And at last, he hypocritically and self-righteously judged Tamar. And he said, bring her out and let her be burned. And he was the one who was guilty in that instance. And that's a pretty accurate ar archetype of us, particularly before Christ. 
And then we have Joseph as this wonderful type and picture of Christ. We see, it says of Joseph in verses 2 and 3 that the Lord was with him. It says of Jesus in Luke that the spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah. It says in John of Jesus, I am not alone for the Father is with me. It says of Joseph that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. It says of Jesus that the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, in Isaiah. And they said of him in John 7, when Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? It says of Joseph that he made him, the Lord made him overseer of Potiphar's house. And we read in Hebrews that Christ was faithful over all God's house. Joseph is a servant, Christ as a son. It says of Joseph that he was in charge of all that Potiphar had. Multiple times it says that. It says of Jesus that he has been given authority to execute judgment before his death. And then after his death, it says, he himself says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. It says of Joseph that he left his garment. Six times it says that in the text we just read. Christ himself was stripped of his garment, both pre-crucifixion and when he went to the cross. Joseph was put into prison with the king's prisoners. It says of Christ that he was numbered with the transgressors in Isaiah. Of Joseph, there's no record of him offering a defense to Potiphar. And we know that of Jesus, it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then continuing on in Isaiah 53, this, this one text, you can see both pictures, Joseph and Jesus in this one, verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, both were accused of those things and both were innocent. You see, Joseph precipitated the events that led to God saving his people from physical famine and death. And the Lord Jesus saved God's people from spiritual famine and death. The biggest thing that I want to look at and spend the rest of our time on is Joseph's victorious resistance of both internal temptation and external trial. Internal temptation and external trial. And Christ was victorious in the same way, although it was different for him because he had not a sin nature. But it does say that he was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. So I want to spend the rest of the time there. Joseph's victorious resistance of both internal temptation and external trial. Of the internal temptation, Matthew Henry says this. Here is the most illustrious instance of virtue and resolved chastity in Joseph, who, by the grace of God, was enabled to resist and overcome this temptation. And, all things considered, his escape was, for all I know, 
as great an instance of the divine power as the deliverance of the three children out of the fiery furnace. The temptation he was assaulted with was very strong. Never was a more violent onset made upon the fort of chastity than this recorded here. That's quite a claim. So what was it that that made this such a severe temptation to him? Because it seems like he handles it with ease and with poise and like it was no problem. But if we consider his state and some things about these circumstances, then we see how significant and how severe the temptation was. Consider first his youth. He was a young man. He was a single, unmarried man. He was handsome in appearance, it says. And that has its own sort of internal temptations that go along with that. In addition to that, he was used to this plentiful living in Potiphar's house. He had no want of satisfying his appetites. Not his carnal appetites, but bodily appetites. And surely he didn't lack anything that he needed. He was chief in Potiphar's house. So he would have been well accustomed to getting whatever he needed and whatever he wanted. And we know that that tends to make a person more inclined and apt to give in to the temptations of the flesh when you're used to ease and comfort. We consider also the likely beauty of the woman, of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar was the captain of the guard, so he was high up, and it's unlikely that he would have had an unattractive wife. Her favor would have ensured his continued success. If he had done this thing, then not only would it be to the satisfaction of the lust of the flesh, but the boastful pride of life, because it's likely that she would have spoke favorably on his behalf and that he would have continued to be in a position of authority and maybe even ascended higher beyond that. There's the frequency of the temptation. It says that day after day, She spoke to him. And then there's the lack of practical obstacles. They were often in the same house. It would have been easy to do this evil. And in the final case, there was an absence of any witnesses. It says none of the men of the house were there. In all likelihood, it would have been kept a forever secret. And no one would have known about this. Many times when we resist temptation, it's because we know that we'll be caught or we know that there will be some outward visible consequence. Not so in this case. And then at last, she laid hands on him. She physically tried to commit this act of evil with him and he still had the wherewithal to flee from her. So there's, that's the internal temptation, but in addition to that, Not only were there workings and drawings inwardly, but there was the external trial, the internal temptation and the external trial. She was in charge of him as the wife of his master, and he would have been obliged to obey her wishes. It was perilous for him to disobey or slight her because she had this great power over him. And he was certainly in danger of some misfortune if he acted against her. And then subsequently she acted against him, which is later what happened 
But that was certainly a pressure. He would have known that this was something that could have happened every time he resisted the temptation. And then in the last case, when he fled from the house. So there was this pressure externally to just, just do it. Look, well, look at all the bad things that are going to happen if you don't go along with this. It could be very bad for you. And so we turn to his steadfast resistance. In the face of this internal temptation and this external trial, he exhibited a steadfast resistance. He would not thus wrong his master, Potiphar. He said, he's made me great in this house. I wouldn't do this to him. He would not impugn his own honor. He would not defile his own body. And it's interesting here that he appeals to his position of power as a reason that he wouldn't do this. Is it because most of the time, wicked people use their power to commit sin, to commit oppression or to do acts of evil. But a righteous man uses his power as an opportunity to do good and resist evil. And that's what he does here. He says, because I'm in charge, because I'm highest and most well thought of in the house, how could I do this? It's backwards from the world's thinking. This is the world thinks, because I'm in charge, I'll do this and nobody can tell me that I can't do it. And nobody can impose consequences on me when I do do it. But God puts righteous men like this in charge in order to do good and resist evil. And he uses this power as an argument against that evil. But then look at his chief objection here. He says, how then can I do? How can I? How can I possibly do this? This great wickedness and sin, not against Potiphar, not against his wife, not against anyone else on an earthly level, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Against God. All sin is primarily sin against God. And so the psalmist says, David, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he put Uriah to death, he cries out to the Lord against you. I mean, he had just killed a man, and he says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So just as all sin is primarily sin against God, all resistance to it is primarily out of love for him above everything else. Now, if we stopped here, okay, we're, we're Judah, Jesus is Joseph, then that would be a pretty discouraging and hopeless message, especially for Father's Day. A lot of times people do stop there. Well, look, you're the failure. You're Judah. Jesus is the victor. He's Joseph. But you're forgiven. That's the gospel. But that's not all. That's not all. That is the gospel in part. But we have a greater hope than merely being forgiven for being like Judah. Because we are not always Judah and Christ, only Christ Joseph. He intends to transform us from one degree of glory to another. The gospel is not just 
you're forgiven for being a failure, good luck, it'll all be better in heaven. It's you're forgiven for being a failure, and now God, by the blood and the cross of Christ, will make you a success and a victor. He will take you from forgiveness to freedom. Freedom not only from the punishment of sin, but freedom from its power. Recall Judah's own transformation. It says, as Ben pointed out at the end of Genesis 38, that he did not know Tamar again. So the Lord humbled him. He did wickedly. But when he was caught, the Lord was gracious to him and humbled him. And he did not know Tamar again. Then later in Genesis, in chapter 44, he actually offered to take Benjamin's place. You can go read that, and we'll get to that later in the series. He offers to take Benjamin's place when Benjamin is to be kept and held captive by Joseph because of this this scheme that Joseph concocts to test his brothers. I shouldn't say concocts. I mean, he he devises this scheme in order to, to, to test his brothers. And Joseph, I mean, Benjamin is supposed to be kept there because of this sin that he committed, and Judah says, no, I'll go. I'll stay instead. But remember that before, Judah was the one, I mean, he was complicit when they threw him in the pit and then sold him as a slave. So there's a transformation there in Judah. But let's consider some further things. What is the command that Christ always gave in almost every instance when he would heal someone and say, your sins are forgiven you. And he would follow that up with, go and sin no more. Not just you're forgiven, good luck. Continue to be miserable and a failure. Go and sin no more. He never gives commands that he doesn't give the power to fulfill. And so part of the new covenant promises is this victory over sin if we look in jeremiah 31 he says i will put my law within them this is quoted in hebrews when it's talking about the new covenant in chapter 10 he says i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts hebrews 10 emphasizes the fact that the old covenant was external and the new covenant is internal the old covenant has a law that you could never keep And then the new covenant has a law inwardly that you long to do. And he gives the power to do it. In Ezekiel 36, he says, see, we we tend to always read the passage that says, I will take out the heart of stone within you and I will put within you a heart of flesh. And then we stop there. But the next verse says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will cause you. That's hope in the new covenant that we don't have to continue in failure and the shame of sin committing it over and over again. Turn over to Romans 6, which is probably the most thorough treatise on this concept in the Bible. Or at least, if not the most thorough, then the most explicit Beginning in verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, or God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man was crucified with him, and this is why. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died is free from sin. If you have believed in Christ and yielded to him, you have died and you are free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Listen to this. This is the command at the end. All this knowledge. This is, your, this is your knowledge, and now here's what you're to do with it. So you also must reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why it says in Romans 8, we all love Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And again, we stop right there. But the next verse has a connecting word that says for. For or because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So if Joseph is a picture of Christ, then the gospel says you will be conformed to that very image. One degree of glory to the next. Look, go and read Hebrews 11 and see all of the victors there. It paints a picture of victorious men, notwithstanding all their failures, but going on from one degree of glory to the next. All these things they did, these awesome things they did by faith, by faith, by faith, and it says at the very end that the world was not worthy of them. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, the greatest miracle is for God to take a sinful man out of a sinful world, to sanctify him, put him back into the sinful world, and then keep him from sinning. That's a miracle indeed. Now I know, I know some of you guys, you're listening to me say this, and you're doing the Eeyore. Well, I guess I was just... That's just not me. I can never do that anyway. <laughs> I'm serious. Some of y'all do that. I've done it before too. Introverted people who are very self-reflective tend to do this more. You're introspective in a morbid kind of way and you just keep thinking and you say, well, I'm just discouraged. No, you're not. You just feel sorry for yourself. So sorry for yourself. You don't believe the power of the gospel. It's unbelief. It's sin. You say, well, I just can't live that way. You guys need to take that Eeyore to the cross. 
That's where Eeyore belongs. You take that nail right out of his tail. I'm, <laughs> I shouldn't be so mean to Eeyore. He's <laughs> but I'm serious. You take that person to the cross, that self-pitying person that doesn't believe the fullness of the gospel that Jesus died and shed his blood and took you there down to the cross with him and buried you by baptism into death so that you could be raised and walk in newness of life. You take that person to the cross. Say, I'm going to believe the gospel. And when you fail, that's what the forgiveness and the blood is for. You fail and then you come boldly. You draw near. You confess. You forsake. And then you get back up and you walk in the power of the Spirit again by faith. And you do it more and more and more. And then he transforms you from one degree of glory to the next. And it's an upward trajectory of victory. Not... Um, if, if you think that you're always going to be a failure and that Jesus just died to forgive you of your failures, then you're always going to be a failure because you're not trusting in the power of the cross and the victory of the resurrection, and that's what you'll be. But you don't have to be. You don't have to be. So, We, look, we looked at Joseph's steadfast resistance, the, the internal temptation and the external trial. And now we need to make it personal. Personal for us. What does that look like for us? What does it look like to be not those who are in the flesh but in the spirit? How do we get to that place? I'm defining internal temptation as the inward draw to gratify the desires of the flesh. The inward draw to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's internal temptation. These aren't clear cut, but you can make some distinction between them, the internal and the external. They're not completely divided. But there's a distinction to be made. External trial, I'm defining as the outward pressure to fold in the heat of battle. The outward pressure to fold in the heat of battle. So, the internal temptation. This is resistance against sexual immorality. I'm pulling this from Galatians 5, verses 19 and 20. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Ben talked about that recently. Murder, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He gives the catch-all at the end. Anything else that's like that is the lust of the flesh. So that's, those are the things that we are seeking to resist. And then conversely, in the same passage, he gives the fruit of the Spirit, which is the opposite. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So how, so, I mean, some, we, we look at this and say, okay, how am I ever, how am I ever going to get from being 
like Judah to being like Joseph. That just seems, I mean, I'm overwhelmed by my sinfulness. I'm overwhelmed by my internal temptations. How do I get there? The very first thing is that you must abide in Christ because apart from him, you can do nothing. That's every day. That's a daily, a daily practice, just like you eat your meals. And it's also a daily obedience by faith. I'm going to resist this specific thing today in this moment. I'm not going to think about how I'm going to be a titan of the faith in 10 years. I mean, it's good to have that as a goal, but not just say, well, how could I climb that mountain? Well, I'm going to take a step. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and walk in the obedience of faith, and I'm going to resist this temptation that's in front of me right now today, this thing, this little thing. Because mark this, resisting in a moment of significant temptation is possible because of the spiritual fitness conferred by resisting thousands of insignificant temptations. Read that again. Resisting in a moment of significant temptation is possible because of the spiritual fitness conferred by resisting thousands of insignificant temptations. I'll give you a physical picture of this that I'm stealing from Ben. Ben, The pastors are doing a, a Spartan race in September. And we were kind of joking. Ben was saying, like, you know, what would happen if we just showed up and didn't do any training? <laughs> At the time of running a 5K with all these obstacles. And, and, I mean, we would be complete, probably wouldn't be able to complete the race. And if we did, then vomiting and all kinds of stumbling and sick. And it would just, because we didn't have the fitness. We didn't have the physical fitness that we had built up daily over the course of time. And it's the same thing here in the spiritual realm. The daily fitness. Otherwise, when the day of battle comes, you're toast. This begins at home. Practicing at home. A disrespectful word from your wife. A sharp word from your husband. Flagrant disobedience from your children. Or for children in the room, a harsh reaction from your parents. What are you going to do in those moments? Whoever's faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And if you're unfaithful in those things, you'll never, you'll never, never be able to go out into the world and resist real onslaughts of temptation. And then you extend from there to friendships and into the workplace. When people slight you personally in your friendships or in your work, or, or when not even just slights, but what about when they do really evil things to you and they're actively seeking out to, to malign you or to harm you in some way or attack your job or your career? And so on from there. So there, that, the resistance to that internal temptation and then the resistance... To the external trial. That outward pressure to fold in the heat of battle. It says in the Proverbs, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I like that verse. 
The wicked flee. There's not even anyone chasing them. And they run. But the righteous, 10,000 chasing them, they don't care. What about when you're pressured to join with or be silent in the face of acts of evil? It's both of those things. You can either just, you know the feeling. You know the feeling when you're, when you're silent and you know you should have said something. And it's just that sick feeling inside. I should, I should have said something. I should have given a, a rebuke there. I should have spoken the truth. Or if you participate in it. I'm gonna, I'll take that phrase I said about temptation and turn it to trial. Resisting in a moment of significant trial is possible because of the spiritual fitness conferred by resisting thousands of insignificant trials. Little things. Your coworkers are just swearing left and right. You don't join with them in that filthy talk. Or you say, why do you talk like that? Some kind of gentle rebuke. Who taught you to speak that way? I know who taught you. And it wasn't the Lord Jesus. But this, this you can, even though everything begins at home, if you're in a godly household, then likely there won't be many opportunities to practice this at home, and it will be outside of the household of faith, be in your work, in your friendships. When people are, are saying filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, are you willing? So this is the question. This is the question of these next things that I'm going to go over. Are you willing? Are you willing to be maligned and hated? Are you willing to suffer the consequences like Joseph did? He was willing to suffer. He didn't care. Whatever the consequence was, he was willing. Are you willing, when people are saying all those things, to be mocked as a prude? You're, you're prude. You're just, you just nice guy. You're so innocent. You don't, you don't know anything about the real world. And be demeaned, especially as a man. Or what about when people are participating in gossip and slander? And you say, I'm not talking about this person, and you, should, you need to stop talking about that person like that. That's evil. Are you willing to be mocked as a self-righteous buzzkill? Oh, there he is. Oh, we're just trying to have fun. And there he is trying to break it up. Debbie Downer. Or what about the more significant things, cultural things? What about if you reject feminism? Are you willing to be called a misogynist? Because you will be. Misogynists, patriarchal. You hate women, don't you? That's it. You just hate women. What about when you reject the LGBTQ movement? Or, for instance, you refuse to call someone by their pronouns because you don't want to reject and deny the nature that God has created. And you don't want to say, how could I do this great wickedness? And sin against God. It's not about this person. It's about I'm telling a lie about something that God has said and that he has made. Are you willing to be called a bigot and a homophobe? 
What about if you reject the popular race narrative? Are you willing to be called a racist white supremacist? You will be. What if you reject secularism? This idea of neutrality in the public square or in the civil sphere that it's possible to be morally neutral. And instead, you believe that the law of God has a place in civil government. And people say, he's a crazy legalist, Christian nationalist, you psycho. Extreme right-wing crazy person that you believe that the law of God has a place there. You can't, how can you impose your religion on me? You see, but everybody imposes their belief system and their morals on other people. The secularists do it. The question is, where do you get the moral values? They impose their, seek to impose their moral values on society under the guise of not imposing any morality, but it is a morality. It's just a godless one. It's one that's from their own imagination. So are we willing to be called these names? What about if you reject the climate emergency or the COVID hysteria? Most of that's somewhat gone now, but it seems like they're ramping up the climate emergency thing. But what about the next thing that comes along that the government is seeking to use to solidify more and more power? Are you willing to be said, well, you don't, you don't love people. You're just saying that or you're just doing that because you don't love people. You should love your neighbor. Or... You're a science denier. You're just a crazy religious person. You don't believe in science. Because this will, so it starts in the home, extends to friendships in the wor workplace, and we are reaching a point where this will become at last in the sphere of government and civil rule. Many of the things that I just mentioned will become government legislated and enforced and they will be punishable by imprisonment or death if you don't go along with them. And note that it, it's not for preaching the gospel because most of the time they don't care if you say, you're a sinner, you've sinned, you need Jesus. But when you get specific when you get specific about what, what are the sins. No, no, no. I'm not just saying that Jesus came to die for you, but, but he came to die for you because you commit this sin. Not just sin generically, but specific things. This is sinful. That's what the world won't tolerate. And interestingly enough, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That's what he preached, righteousness. And Jesus didn't say you would be persecuted for sharing the gospel. He said you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. When you live as a righteous person, when you refuse to accept and participate in and celebrate the immorality, when you say in your heart, how can I do this and great wickedness against God? That's the only thing that can be our anchor. When it comes, because it, it feels, when you feel the pressure from family, friends, the lateral relationships, then you just think, well, I'm just being mean. I'm just being cruel. If I, I mean, I have to be compassionate and I have to be kind to these people. How can I say this or how can I not participate in it? It's just cruel. It's, how can I? The only way is if you, Jesus said, 
that if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister, then you're not worthy to be called my disciple. And when you're forced to choose between the lateral and the vertical, then the only thing that will anchor you is if you say that and hold fast to that in your heart, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So I'm, and I just want to be clear here that I'm not talking about a bashful kind of, yeah, I don't really, I don't really do that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, it says at the end of that Romans 8 passage. And it says in the letters in Revelation, every single one of the letters, it says in the conclusion that these things will be given to him who conquers. Him who conquered, the one who remains steadfast. Jesus Christ is building a kingdom. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we act like so much. We act, I do this too. We all do it. We act like bashful, shameful, timid people. Instead of believing that we have the truth of God, that we've been redeemed and blood-bought by the God of the universe, and that he intends to use us to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness and expose them, to preach the truth of righteousness, to preach the gospel, to live uprightly in the world so that men can see our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven, or so that they can be put to shame by them. We have that. This is our privilege. This is why we remain here to be like a Joseph. Not just me personally, I'm going to get better with Jesus. No, I'm on a mission. I am on a mission so that Jesus Christ can use me to build his kingdom. I belong here. This is my domain. All authority has been given to him on heaven, in heaven, and on earth. And he sent me and said, go. Make disciples. But we just believe, we have to turn upside down this mindset from the world that they're the ones that are normal and that we're the ones who are backwards. We are the ones who are normal and they are backwards in their depravity, in their sinfulness. And God is seeking to make them normal by the power of the gospel through us. Nobody wants to come and be a part of something that's like, yeah, we're just, I mean, I think this is the right thing, and you should come and believe. There's no power in that. We speak with boldness. That's what they prayed for in Acts, that it would be granted to them to speak with boldness, to speak with power, to speak with authority. And the only reason that we don't speak that way is because we don't really believe it. We don't really believe the, the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel. We don't walk in the spirit and in the power of the gospel. So we do. It's, we're just shameful. We just, act, we just act in timidity. But we haven't been given a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and sound mind. But we ha- in order to get to the point of being really conquerors in the big, great moments, whether it's internal temptations that we're seeking to gain victory over or it's external conflicts. The external conflicts are coming, folks. The COVID thing, that was just, that was just a blip on the radar. That was just the beginning. There is going to be persecution of the church. 
Right now, it hasn't reached the point of imprisonment and death. But if we continue on this trajectory, it will. And we need to have the spiritual fitness to be ready for that. And that starts in the daily things. Faithfulness in the daily things. Faithfulness in my home. Faithfulness in my workplace. Faithfulness in these little moments. And I hear hear Eeyore coming out again. Well, I just can't do that. And you feel down because you failed. You failed in moments like that. You're thinking in your mind about times that you failed. I'm thinking in mind times that I've failed and that before. But the right response to that is not just, well, I'm never going to succeed. The right response is, I come to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and then we go right back out. We come in, we find the forgiveness, and we go back out in power in the power of the Spirit of God. And next time, we say, I'm going to obey by faith. And then if you fail again, then you do the same thing again. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And he's able to save us to the uttermost. So take heart, especially fathers. Especially fathers. I'll just close out with this. Take heart and gird up your loins and start practicing for the days ahead so that we may be found faithful even unto death because and for the sake of him who loved us. I want to read this poem to close. You guys can come back up and begin to sing. Just bow your heads and close your eyes as you listen to this while I read it. Before I read this, I just want to say there's There should be a painful sting when you recognize your failure and deficiency. The ways that you have not been faithful. The ways that you've given in to internal temptation. And the ways that you've buckled under external trial. There should be a sting there. Because it is sin and it is failure and it is real. But the sting, you can't stop there. The sting is intended to lead you to repentance and to come and draw strength from Christ. And so if you feel that sting, then draw near and draw strength from him by faith and abide in him and let his words abide in you. Putting on the whole armor of God to stand firm in the evil day and continuing at all times in prayer in the spirit. There's the promise and the hope of victory in the gospel. So I want to read this poem very short, and then we'll pray. Oh, the victory wrought in me by thy triumphant hand, that in the day of adversity thou strengthenest me to stand. My soul assailed on every side, temptations rage within. But as in thee I now abide, crucified to sin. A slave, no more, to carnal lust, from outward pressures free. A resurrected man of dust, a conqueror in thee. One day I'll join the heavenly host together with the throng. At last in thee will make my boast by that eternal song. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you and confess so much failure and sin, how the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit, and we give in too frequently to the lust of the flesh. And we do this great wickedness and sin against you. And we give in likewise. We faint in the day of adversity. We flee when no one pursues. We buckle under external pressures because we fear man instead of you. We seek the praise of man instead of the praise of God. We just confess this to you, Father. I confess it. I pray that every soul in here would confess the ways that they've done it. And we praise you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin. And we melt before you in gratitude that you, by the power of the gospel and by your work and your death and burial and resurrection, Lord Jesus, that you intend to make us more than conquerors. And that you have given us freedom and victory over sin. He who has died is freed from sin. Lord, strengthen us to the resisting of temptation and the obedience of faith in little things in the days ahead. Strengthen us against external trial to be strong men and women going forth conquering and to conquer. Being strong in you in the strength of your might holding fast to the word of life and holding it forth in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And I pray that every one of us in this room will be found faithful to you, even unto death. Convict us, Father, where we need to be convicted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And may you be the more glorified through us as we seek to please you in all that we do because you are worthy. We look forward to that day when we'll join the heavenly throng and we sing that eternal song of praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.